Welcome, and thanks for listening to the Harvest Lakeshore Sermon Podcast. For more information about us, visit harvestlakeshore.org. Chapter 28, verses 1 through 10. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thanks, Amy. You know, on on the first day, uh, there wasn't this immediate celebration, right? I mean, there was anticipation. We all had that anticipation, right? It's supposed to open. When is it going to open? It's going to come. It's going to come. Um, but for those who were there, they, they had been told by Jesus that he was going to be raised, and yet they came with sorrow and sadness. And yet a cataclysmic event happened. Jesus rose from the dead. The angel came to announce it. An earthquake happened. Now, we couldn't pull that one off this morning, so we went with balloons. But that's what we're going to talk about this morning, that that he is risen and how we know that he is risen. But before we do that, let's pray. Father, I thank you that we have the privilege to gather here, to celebrate this morning, to jump up and down and throw things around because we are celebrating the risen King. And I pray, Father, that you would open up our eyes afresh to this reality that he is risen, that it's, that it's both a miracle and a fact. And I pray, God, that we would have our faith strengthened this morning as we open your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Well, I do want to thank uh, those who came yesterday to set all this up so that we could celebrate Wes and Sarah, organize that. So if you see them, please encourage them and thank them for all that they did. Well, this morning, we're just simply going to answer the question, how do we know Jesus rose from the dead? I'm going to answer that question because Jesus rose from the dead. We're going to look at five proofs, proofs or five truths as to how we know that is true. The first one is this, that the death of Jesus was verified. Because well, you, can't, you can't have a resurrection if you don't have a death. If, if someone doesn't die, they can't rise from the dead. 
right? So we know that Jesus' death was verified. Now, some people will say, well, Jesus was just, he was just faking it. I mean, he was just kind of acting. But here's a reality of what Jesus went through. One author noted the pain for Jesus was absolutely unbearable. In fact, it was literally beyond words to describe. They had to invent a new word. That word is excruciating. Literally, excruciating means out of the cross. Think of that. They needed to create a new word to describe the pain and suffering that Jesus went through what he endured. There was no faking going on that night. There was no movie theater blood. There was no uh, smoke and mirrors. Jesus was on the cross, and he died. Some say, well, he just, he must have just fainted. I mean, I know it's possible sometimes for people to faint, but he didn't just faint. He wasn't just holding his breaths. A an Olympic athlete who, who has great capacity to hold in oxygen can only hold their breath for a matter of minutes. Certainly not a man who had been beaten, who had been bloodied, who couldn't even carry his cross at the end because he was so weak. But here's how we know Jesus wasn't alive because a centurion verified his death. In Mark 15, we had Joseph of Arimathea who wanted to bury Jesus' body, so he asked permission of that, and this is what happened. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died, and summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead, and when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. So Pilate's not going to release a body of someone who's alive. The whole purpose of crucifying people was so that they would die. So he's not going to release them, and he's going to trust the centurion. Why is he going to trust the centurion to tell him that he's dead? Because Roman soldiers were skilled at torturing people. They knew when people were dead. In fact, they knew when people were almost to the place of dying because they could torture them all the way to that place and then stop because they wanted to inflict the most amount of pain and suffering on people. And so they knew when they had either gone too far or they knew when they had committed the act that they may have been commanded to do. That was their job. What they did to Jesus was horrific. And the centurion who reported the death would have been certain that Jesus was dead. Furthermore, the Jews were not claiming that Jesus was alive. In fact, in, in the Gospel of John, they asked for all of those who were hanging on the cross that day to have their legs broken. The reason they would want to have their legs broken is if they were still maybe possibly alive as they hung there, they knew that they couldn't use the strength of their legs to pull themselves up and they would just slowly hang there and they would sadly asphyxiate themselves. It's a horrible thought, horrible sight. But the guards were so certain that Jesus was dead, they didn't even break his legs. They pierced his side, and blood and water came out. And I won't get into all the medical details, but this was proof that Jesus was dead. Enough proof that the 
the enemies of Jesus didn't dispute that he died. Then, secondly, the tomb was sealed. There was an expectation that the body was there in the tomb. But the tomb was sealed. We learned this from Matthew 27. If you look back at your Bibles right before what, what was read this morning, it says in verse 62, the next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said, while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. The guards would do their job or sometimes face death if they didn't do their job, or they would face severe consequences if they didn't do their job. They didn't just get fired. They could meet their demise. And because shame would have been such a big deal, they would have made sure that someone was in the tomb before they sealed the tomb, before they guarded the tomb, because how shameful it would be if they found out that they were guarding an empty tomb. So it was sealed, and the expectation was that Jesus was in there. Not even his disciples were running to the tomb on that first morning. The Jews were not running to the tomb because they expected him to be there because it was sealed. And the only thing that the only thing that moved the guards on that day, the only thing that could persuade them to not do their job was an angel of the Lord. If you look again at verses two to four, and behold, there was a great earthquake and an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. These are men who weren't afraid of anything. These were like SEAL Team 6 type individuals. They killed people for a living. And they became like dead men. That's the only thing that caused them to not stand there. And the tomb was open. So Jesus was dead. The tomb was sealed. And thirdly, the body of Jesus has never been found. The tomb was empty. The angel said he's not here. And in the other accounts, we have others that go to the tomb and verify the fact that there's, there's no one there. Now, there is a reality. An empty tomb does not a resurrection make. I mean, if you've watched maybe some documentaries of different times where they have to go find the remains of an individual and they dig up the grave because they need to test it for whatever reason, and on occasion, they go and dig it up and the, and the bones aren't there. And in your documentary, they're not going, they must have risen from the dead. No, they're typically like, hey, where's the body? Where's the stuff? Who moved it? Who, who hid it? Now, again, it's hard to believe that it would be stolen because of the seriousness that Romans took in doing their job. 
But there's just a reality. No autopsy has ever been done. All we have is an account of of lying about it. I mean, look at verses 11 to 15. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. So they tell him, Jesus is risen from the dead. All this crazy stuff. Angel came like dead men. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they had gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, he will sat- we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they're going to conspire. We're going we're gonna to figure out how not to get you in trouble for this. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And the story has been spread among the Jews to this day. The Jews had enough money to bribe these guards to lie about what had happened. And they know it's a lie because they told them. They weren't just saying, no, it wasn't true. We don't believe you. No, we want you to lie. But they had enough money. Certainly, if they had enough money, how in the world did did not someone break if the body was stolen away and hidden somewhere? How is it that someone didn't get a whiff of something and go, "It's, it's over here. There is money to be had. People will sell out their grandma for money. But there's no body. All the religious leaders had to do was produce a body. That's all they had to do. They didn't have to go through all these gyrations. All they had to do was, here's the dead body. The the ultimate mic drop, boom. Dead body, story over. These were individuals who for years were trying to apprehend Jesus and to kill him. You think that they were just kind of like napping and just, you know, just having a peaceful night, the, the, those two nights as Jesus was in the grave? Are you kidding me? They wanted to do everything they could to make sure that didn't happen. Nobody has been found because he is risen as he said. And thirdly, and most importantly, there were eyewitnesses that confirmed the resurrection. There were a a multitude of people, multiple independent accounts, seeing Jesus alive after he had died and was buried. And this is how the story goes. Women find out that Jesus has risen from the dead. Jesus appears to women and at times, and they're, they're, the women are told to go and tell everybody else. Now, you have to understand, in that day, that a woman's testimony wasn't even admissible in court. Horrible how oppressed women were in that day. How wonderful Jesus treated women as they should. But their testimony wouldn't have even been admissible in court. What? No Jew would have created a narrative in which some of the first people to hear about Jesus would have been women and them go and tell others about it. No way would that have happened unless Jesus rose from the dead. And this is what happened. Jesus appeared to Mary Magdalene. 
He appeared to other women. He appeared to Cleopas and another disciple on the road to Emmaus, to 11 disciples and others as seen in Luke 24, to 10 apostles and others when Thomas was absent in John 20, and then later on to Thomas and the other apostles, to seven apostles as reported in John 21, to the disciples here at the end of Matthew 28, and he was with the apostles at the Mount of Olives before his ascension as reported in Luke 24 and Acts 1. Not to mention what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15. He said, Jesus appeared to Cephas, then to the 12. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Well, some say, well, they were hallucinating. Now listen, I'm, I am not a, an expert in narcotics, okay? Drugs that can make you see things that aren't really there. But, but here's what I know. If a thousand people take some substance that makes you go on some crazy trip, okay, everybody goes on a different trip. Nobody goes on the same trip. Nobody goes, hey, did you see that? No, because everybody goes on a different trip. Not everybody's going to, so, so this hallucination idea just, just doesn't hold weight. There were so many people, author and investigative journalist Lee Strobel, who, who actually, his wife came to Christ and he thought about divorcing her and uh, before he did, uh, he did some research because he had a law background, he had journalism background, I'm going to do some research. And, and the research that he found was just overwhelming to him, and he became a Christian. But this is what he said. He said, without question, the amount of testimony and corroboration of Jesus' post-resurrection appearances is staggering. To put it into perspective, if you were to call each one of the witnesses to a court of law to be cross-examined for just 15 minutes each, and you went around the clock without a break, it would take you from breakfast on Monday until dinner on Friday to hear them all. After listening to 129 straight hours of eyewitness testimony, who could possibly walk away unconvinced? Eyewitnesses confirmed the resurrection. But they not only confirmed the resurrection, they were willing to die for the resurrected Christ. They said, I will follow you no matter what the cost is. And they lived their lives for Christ. Who dies for a lie? Because some say they hid the body. Well, even if they had hid the body, who's going to die for a dead body. Certainly there are some, maybe there's some individuals that will lie about something because there's some advantage for them or there's some power involved or some wealth involved for someone or some influence that's there. But the disciples had no advantage. They just had suffering in front of them. Simon Greenleaf was one of the greatest legal minds America has produced. He observed that it is impossible that the apostles could have persisted in affirming the truths that they had narrated 
had not Jesus actually risen from the dead, and had they not known this fact as certainty as they knew any other fact, Greenleaf concluded that the resurrection of Christ is one of the best supported events in history according to the laws of legal evidence administered to, uh, in courts of justice. And one other quote I just I came across this morning. One that I had read a, a long time ago by Chuck Colson, who went to prison because he was involved in the Watergate scandal uh, back years ago. And he said this. He said, I know the resurrection is a fact. And Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. They believed it because they saw Jesus. John even tells us this at the beginning of 1 John. He says, that which, we ha what, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Only, only seeing the risen Christ would have motivated them to live their lives in the way that they did and to die the deaths that they all died. I mean, just look at the list, the fate of the apostles. Peter, crucified. Andrew, crucified. Matthew was killed by the sword. John, who wrote that, he died of natural causes as far as we know, but he did that in exile. James, the son of Alphaeus, crucified. Philip, crucified. Simon the Zealot, crucified. Thaddeus, killed by arrows. James, the brother of Jesus, stoned. Thomas, thrust with a spear. Bartholomew, crucified. And James, the son of Zebedee, killed by the sword. Not to mention Paul, who was a persecutor of the church. He was of those who would have been excited uh, to have people not believe in Jesus to the degree that he was present at the death of some of the early Christians. He had everything to lose, everything in his life to lose, no gain whatsoever to acknowledge that Jesus was alive and risen. And yet he encountered Christ. It transformed his life and he suffered time and again because he'd encountered Christ. He is risen as he said. So Jesus then invites us. He invites everyone to follow him. It is both 
truthful. It is both a historical fact and it is miraculous that Jesus rose from the dead. And because that is true, we must wrestle with what Jesus said. Jesus said these words in John 14. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then in the book of Matthew, Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. It's not a lighthearted call. It's a call to leave everything. But the one who is making that call forgives us of our sins as we reflected upon that on Friday night washes all of our sins away. We can have a relationship with God because of what Jesus has done, and he is worth dying for. Now, as the chapter comes to a close, the 11 disciples in verse 16 went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them, and when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. So some worshiped. They worshiped because they'd been forever changed. Their lives had been flipped, turned upside down. And their lives weren't now comfortable. And okay, Jesus didn't come and promise like this peaceful life in which you'll never have any problems and you'll have all kinds of money and everything's gonna be just fine. No, Jesus pointed them to a kingdom that's coming, a kingdom that we're called to live for. And so they saw what Jesus had done and they worshiped him. That was my experience as I came to know Christ early in college. I love that we have this kind of celebration on Easter Sunday because I used to think about church as being like boring. Church equals boring. Not here. Because he is risen. He is risen just as he said. But I do want to make this note before we end. It does say when, when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. So you might be here this morning and you, and you might still have doubts, even though all that we've talked about is true. You, you might still have doubts. These were individuals who were in the presence of the risen Christ. Okay, you're not the first one who's doubted, you're not the last. I mean, even Thomas, who ended up dying for Jesus, he, he doubted. Let me just briefly tell you about that interaction. Thomas said this in John 20. He said, Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into the side, I will never believe. Then eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. I don't know if Jesus just walked through the wall or what happened, but he was just there. 
And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. We may not be there present as Thomas was, but even those who were present still had doubts. So I don't want anyone to ever feel shame that they have questions and doubts. Jesus wasn't worked up over the people who had questions and doubts. He loved them, cared for them, and he's, as he cared for Thomas, Jesus cares for you. There may be a time where you need to do some study and, and read in God's Word, or you need to read some other resources whether it's one written by Lee Strobel, who I mentioned, he wrote a book called A Case for the Resurrection. He also wrote another book called A Case for Christ. They can be helpful resources written by someone who was trying to disprove, disprove Christ, but came to Christ. Or More Than a Carpenter by Josh McDowell. Or maybe even a book like Why I Trust the Bible, Questions and Answers by William Mounts. So, because some of you are like, well, you just, all your arguments just came from Scripture. Yes, they did come from Scripture because I believe, because of much study that I've done, that this is God's authoritative word, that there's no other document in all of human history that is provable to be accurate as this one. But if you have questions, Ask them. I would love to spend some time with you. So would Wes or any of the leaders in our church. We'd love to spend some time with you studying and praying. As Thomas said, I, I want to see it. We can pray. Lord Jesus, reveal yourself to us, and he will. Friends, God raised Jesus. It's both historical and miraculous. The resurrection gives us comfort. As we celebrated with those balloons popping, he has victory over hell and sin and death. And the resurrection gives us hope because the troubles of this life are not all that, that we have. It's not just this and we're done. No, it gives us hope for the coming resurrection when Jesus comes back to gather to himself those who have trusted in him and have followed him. Because there will come a day where everything is going to be changed. At the sound of a trumpet, at the twinkling of an eye, it's going to happen this fast. Everything is going to change. And we have hope that we will be resurrected one day because Jesus was resurrected. Jesus is the one and only Son of God. And we know God loves us because he gave his perfect Son to pay for our sins. And he died on that cross. He took upon himself God's wrath. But he didn't stay dead. He is risen just as he said. And that's why we've gathered here today to celebrate. And that's why we gather every Sunday to celebrate that glorious truth. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you have sent your son. I thank you, Father, that 
on this day, we didn't come with our heads bowed and mourning, expecting that, that everything that we had put our hope in had been dashed forever. But I'm so grateful, God, that we came with great anticipation. Not anticipation that balloons would fall, but anticipation to worship again the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, would you work in us a longing. Not a longing that our Savior would come, for he has come and he has risen, but a longing for when he will come again and when we will see him face to face and the things of this world will pass away. Lord, I pray that you would be with us and guide us. Would we respond by going and telling others about him as the disciples did? And we ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Why don't we stand and respond? Thank you for listening to the Harvest Lakeshore Sermon Podcast. Harvest Lakeshore exists to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. For more information about us, visit harvestlakeshore.org.